Hey Future Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. And I'm Andy. And we are the hosts of Unnatural, a true crime podcast. Each week, we'll dive into some of the most unnerving crimes that this unnatural world has to offer. Listen for Unnatural on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. Hey guys, I'm Dee Dee West and this is Broken Limelight. Today's episode is going to be about one of the greatest heavy metal guitarists of all time, Dimebag Daryl from the band Pantera. Pantera was formed in the 1980s and they really rose to fame in the early 90s. Like many other bands, there was a little bit of tension among the band members and they ended up splitting up and they divided into two separate bands and this really angered some of their fans. Now, one angry fan named Nathan Gale kind of lost his shit about it. So let's talk about the life and death of Dimebag Daryl. Dimebag Daryl was born Daryl Lance Abbott on August 20th, 1966. His older brother, Vinnie Paul, was about two years older than he was. Their father was a country music producer named Jerry Abbott. Daryl and Vinnie had a really tight bond, and they got into music at a really young age. They both started playing drums when Daryl was 12 and Vinnie was 14, and Vinnie was a natural. As he got better and better, Daryl kind of started to get left behind, so he asked his father if he would buy him a guitar for his birthday. His first guitar was a Les Paul-style honer, which he received along with an amp on his 12th birthday. At first, he didn't know how to play it. He would just, like, put on makeup like like um, like the band Kiss. He would do his makeup just like Ace Frehley, and then he would stand in front of the mirror just posing with his guitar. Vinny would be like, Man, are you ever going to learn how to play that thing? So their father, Jerry, actually learned how to play some Kiss songs on the guitar just so he could teach them to Daryl. And since Jerry was a country music producer, they often had country musicians that were coming in and out of their home to use their home studio. So Daryl and Vinny were both able to watch these musicians and pick some things up from them. Within about a month, Daryl asked Vinny to jam with him. They played Smoke on the Water for six hours. Going forward, the pair would spend a ton of time together learning music and just absolutely thriving on it. In 1979, their parents divorced. Fortunately, they remained on good terms and the family stayed close. At age 14, Daryl started attending guitar competitions. His mom would have to take him because he wasn't old enough to go alone. He usually won these competitions and eventually they asked him to stop competing so that he could instead be a judge. In 1981, a band was formed that would eventually be known as Pantera. Initially, the band was called Gemini, and then it was Eternity before they finally settled on the name Pantera. So while in high school, Vinnie Paul was approached by a couple of his buddies, Terry Glaze, Donnie Hart, and Tommy Bradford, and they asked him to join their band. Vinnie told him that he would join, but only under the condition that his brother Daryl could also join. And they were pretty hesitant at first, because they were like 18 years old, and Daryl was only 16, which... At that age, that's, like, an impossible difference. And, like, Daryl was, like, a skinny, scrawny little kid. Like, the little twerp, you know? But they really wanted Vinny, so they gave in and they let Daryl play. Initially, they let Daryl share the guitar duties with Terry Glaze, but eventually they came to be really impressed by him and they made him lead guitarist. According to Glaze, he just morphed over a six-month period. 
Pantera wasn't always a heavy metal band. In fact, they started off as glam metal, and they took influences from bands like Kiss, Van Halen, and Judas Priest. Like, they were so, like, hair glam metal. They wore spandex and makeup and a ton of hairspray. The band signed to Magic Metal Records, and Pantera released its first album, Metal Magic, in 1983, when Daryl was only 16 years old. In 1984, Pantera released their second studio album called Projects in the Jungle, followed by I Am the Night in 1985. These albums were still kind of glammy, but they started to show the band becoming progressively heavier. They started kind of leaning into this heavier metal style, and Terry Glaze wasn't really about that. He was he was more glam rock, and he just wasn't really fitting in with the rest of the band and their changing style. So Terry Glaze left the band in 1986. They held auditions for a new singer, and they tried a few guys out, but they didn't quite find what they were looking for until they came across 18-year-old Phil Anselmo, and they hired him on the spot. Phil Anselmo immediately clicked with the band. He had a gritty, raspy voice that brought a much harder sound to the band, and it allowed Daryl to play around with heavy, speedy guitar riffs. So Phil ended up being like the missing piece to, to the sound that they were going for. The new sound that Pantera developed came to be known as groove metal, and in 1988, Pantera released their fourth studio album. It was called Power Metal, and this album showcased their new singer and their new sound. By this time, Daryl was becoming widely recognized as one of the greatest heavy metal, <laughs> heavy metal, as one of the greatest heavy metal guitarists of all time. In fact, Dave Mustaine actually approached him after the release of Power Metal and asked him to join Megadeth. But Daryl kind of did the same thing that Vinny did earlier. He said, only if my brother Vinny can come too. And Dave was like, nah, we already have a drummer. So Daryl and Vinny stayed with their band and, you know, Megadeth moved on. In 1990, Pantera got new management and they released their fifth album, Cowboys from Hell. This was the first album that really hit that groove metal sound that they had been developing. It went certified gold and then platinum. And then they released Vulgar Display of Power in 1992, which would become one of the biggest selling heavy metal albums ever. It debuted at number 44 and stayed on the charts for 79 weeks. It was also ranked at number 10 on Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest metal albums of all time. Daryl developed a new look that would kind of become his signature. He would wear cargo shorts, a sleeveless shirt, a razor blade pendant, and he dyed his goatee half pink. Also, up until now, he had been going under the name Diamond Daryl, which fit perfectly when he was in glam metal, but now that... Pantera's heavy metal, it didn't really fit. So he adopted a new name, Dimebag Daryl. Some people are confused about the meaning of his name, um, like where he got Dimebag from. It's weed. It's, it's not complicated. It's a marijuana reference. A Dimebag is a $10 bag of marijuana. There's no other secret meaning behind it. Daryl just liked to smoke pot. And for some reason, there's speculation about it, though, like as if it could mean something else. Um... I think it's funny, like, I wonder how many people walk around through life not knowing marijuana references. I got five on it. Baby, let's go half on a sack. Man, I wish Summer was here for this. <laughs> so Pantera continued touring and recording, and in 1994, they released their seventh studio album, Far Beyond Driven. This album is described as the heaviest album to ever debut at number one. This album was recorded in a new studio in Nashville, and the guys were from Texas. So with all the traveling, the band ended up hanging out in each other's hotel rooms and getting drunk and partying. 
The lead single from Far Beyond Driven was called Broken, and it was about Phil's struggle with chronic back pain and his self-medication with alcohol, pills, and heroin. Phil had begun to isolate himself from the rest of the band. Like, he started taking his own tour bus separately from the rest of the guys, and he wouldn't join the band until like 20 or 30 minutes before going on stage. Way down the line in 2014, he would admit in an interview that before shows, he would drink an entire bottle of wild turkey every night before going on stage. And then he would like interrupt the show with random ranting. And he would even say like later that he didn't even quite remember the shit he was saying or why he said it. Like he was so fucked up that he's like, I I was a whole different person. But anyway, at the time he was becoming notorious for the things that he would say during the shows. Like at one show, he stated that rap music was advocating for the murder of white people. So people accused him of being a racist, which he denied, and he issued an apology stating that he was drunk and the remarks were a mistake. Of course, this didn't help with the tensions among the band members. Pantera's next album came in 1996, and it was called The Great Southern Trend Kill. With the tensions among the band members rising, they decided to record separately. And when I say they recorded separately, I mean everybody recorded together in Texas and Phil recorded by himself in New Orleans. He actually recorded in Trent Reznor's studio. That's the front man for Nine Inch Nails. A couple months after the release of this album, the band continued touring. And after a concert in Dallas, Texas, Phil used a lethal dose of heroin and went into cardiac arrest. He was actually dead for five minutes before the paramedics were able to revive him. He recalled waking up in the hospital confused. He said, I didn't know what had happened. I had all these tubes hooked up to me and I sat straight up and threw up immediately. This nurse leaned over and said to me, welcome back to life. You overdosed on heroin. The next night, Phil apologized to his bandmates and he said that he would quit using drugs. Just two days later, he was back on stage to continue the tour. The revelation that Phil was addicted to heroin came as a huge shock to Vinny and Daryl. And they were kind of embarrassed about the situation. So this just added to the riff that was already building within the band. They started working on their next album called Reinventing the Steel, but it was a drag getting Phil to actually participate. After the album's release, Vinny said in an interview, it was like pulling teeth to get him down to the studio. He didn't like any of the material and it was always just like this headbutting contest. As if the situation wasn't stressful enough, Daryl and Vinny's mother was diagnosed with lung cancer in 1999 and she died just six weeks later. This really affected the brothers who were particularly close with their mother, especially Daryl. Phil Anselmo had multiple side projects that he was working on, including a band called Down. The rest of the band didn't have any problem with Phil having additional musical projects. But then 9-11 happened in 2001, and Phil told Vinny that he wanted to take a break from music for about a year. Daryl and Vinny were frustrated, but they agreed to take a break for what would become an indefinite period of time. But Phil didn't stop touring or recording with his other bands. He apparently was only taking a break from Pantera. But according to Phil, the break was mutually agreed upon by all members of the band. So for all of 2002, since Phil was touring with his other bands, Daryl and Vinny figured that once those tours were over in 2003, Phil would come back to keep working with Pantera. But instead, he started recording another album with his own band. And while performing with his other bands, he started to say shit on stage like, Fuck Pantera. Pantera's dead. Making it clear that he was not trying to be in the band anymore. According to Pantera's manager, Kim Zide Davis, she said, 
Really, it was just a complete lack of communication and the wrong things being said at the wrong time. Philip doesn't have a real understanding that he needs to be careful of who he says what to and how people can misconstrue what he's saying. I spent the better part of the last three years with Pantera, working with them on and off, trying to keep them from disintegrating. The brothers were ready to go, and so was Rex, that's the basis, but Philip was beyond anybody's control. So now, with Phil and Selmo making these comments like, fuck Pantera, everybody's like, is is that it? Did Pantera just break up? When you ask Vinnie Paul, he was like, there never was an official breakup of the band. It never officially broke up. Phil just started making all these fuck Pantera comments, and the guys were like, I guess we don't have a band anymore, man. We better start doing something else. And it just got worse. Like, Phil and Selmo, in response, was like, well, they never communicated to me either. They have phones, too. And and then he said something like, their way of communication was they would send an errand girl to call me and see where my head was at. Now, that was pretty offensive, so I didn't play that game. And time passed. And I don't let time pass. I have to do something. I can't sit on my ass and just do nothing. I have to do something, and it must be musical. When I don't use my gift, I become defunct, and I become clumsy, and I become useless. It's a terrible feeling to feel that vulnerable. And then he goes on to say, We were in Ireland when 9-11 terrorist attacks took place in New York. We were stuck there for seven or eight days, and the tour was called off because of the turbulence. After that, it seemed there was a great distancing. Now, this is the part that starts to get a little, like, troubling. He says, I think more or less it lies between Dimebag and I. There was never a point when he could not get drunk, which was pretty much every day. And now I'm hearing it's worse than ever. He would attack me vocally, and just knowing that he was so much smaller than me, I could kill him like a fucking piece of vapor, you know? He would turn into vapor. His chin would, at least, if I fucking smacked it. And he knows that. The world should know that. So physically, of course, he deserves to be beaten severely. After hearing this, Dimebag and Vinny, of course, were like, what the fuck? And, like, they had a hard time believing it, to the point that Vinnie Paul actually went out and obtained a recording of this interview just to make sure he was really saying that. Because, of course, Phil and Selmo tried to backtrack and say, like, that's not quite what he said or he was joking. So Vinnie Paul went back and listened to it and was like, there's no way he was joking. This guy was pissed off and, like, threatening, threateningly saying, Dimebag Daryl deserves to be beaten severely. So Vinny made sure to express that to his fans. He made sure the fans knew exactly what Phil Anselmo was saying and that he wasn't joking. Somewhere throughout all this back and forth drama, the band's bassist, Rex Brown, said, I'm out. And so Daryl and Vinny went on and formed their own band, a new band called Damage Plan. Now, Damage Plan didn't come anywhere near the commercial success of Pantera, but it didn't do badly. And a lot of Pantera fans went on to become fans of Damage Plan. However, Pantera fans were kind of split down the middle as some went on to become fans of Phil and Selmo's bands. So this caused a rift between the Pantera fans. Damage Plan released their debut album in February 2004, and they spent the rest of the year touring on their Devastation Across the Nation tour. They played at smaller, intimate venues and nightclubs, trying to meet new fans and connect with old ones. Vinny and Daryl had this expression they used to get pumped up, like, what it was was they would high-five each other and say, Van Halen! And it was just kind of like their little their little fun code word, like to get ready for, for an adventure. Now, as I mentioned, a lot of people were really upset about Pantera's breakup, but one fan took it particularly difficult. Difficultly? That's not right. One fan took it particularly hard. A 25-year-old former Marine named Nathan Gale. Nathan Gale was born on September 11th, 1979, 
He was a big guy. At 25, he was six foot three and weighed over 250 pounds. After high school, Nathan developed a drug addiction, and he worked minimum wage jobs while living with his mom, and he would often tell her that he felt like he was being watched. She figured this was just his drug use that was making him paranoid. But at some point, Nathan became violent with his mother, and she kicked him out of the house. He became homeless, and eventually she let him come back under the condition that he go to rehab. So Nathan went and did the rehab thing, and then he enlisted in the Marine Corps in 2002, which made his mom really proud and really hopeful. For Christmas that year, she bought him a handgun. So Nathan was stationed in North Carolina until October 2003 when he was discharged. So he was he was in the, in the Marines for like a year, maybe? The official reason for his discharge isn't clear, but his mother would eventually go on to say that he was discharged because of a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. And according to his mom, Nathan was never on medication for this or being treated for it at all. So she just gave this untreated schizophrenic a gun for Christmas. So Nathan played on a semi-professional football team, and his teammates recalled that he would listen to Pantera before games to mentally prepare himself. He was a huge Pantera fan, and he became especially fixated when the band broke up in 2003. His friends were Pantera fans too, but they all noticed that he was, like, over the top. Like, Nathan would claim that he was the true writer of Pantera songs. Like, he would invite his friends over to jam and be like, let's jam this song that I wrote, and they'd be like, this is Pantera. And he'd be like, no, they stole this from me. I wrote this song. He also said that Pantera tried to claim his identity. Before long, his friends started to become really uncomfortable around him, and, like, he also did weird shit, like, he would pretend to carry a dog and, like, interact with it. So his friends, little by little, all began to distance themselves from him. Nathan also had a pretty lengthy criminal record. Um, it was pretty nonviolent, to tell you the truth, but nonetheless, it's not a short list. Um, so, like, some of the charges he had were trespassing, sleeping in a park, stealing from a construction site, driving with a suspended license, and skateboarding at a Kmart. Towards the end of 2004, he got a job as a construction worker, and he got his own apartment in Marysville, Ohio. On April 8, 2004, Nathan attended a Damage Plan concert in Cincinnati, Ohio. He ran on stage where he was stopped by security before he reached the band. He refused to leave and he ended up toppling over a light board and he was dragged, he was dragged out by security and ended up causing nearly $2,000 in damages. The band didn't end up pressing charges because they just didn't want to go back to Cincinnati for the court. Eight months later, Nathan would try this again. On December 8, 2004, which coincidentally happened to be the anniversary of John Lennon's death. But on this evening, Nathan attended another Damage Plan concert at the Al Rosa Villa nightclub in Columbus, Ohio. He hung around in the parking lot, just kind of like lingering while the opening acts performed. And he was wearing a hockey jersey over a hoodie with a baseball cap and thick glasses. Another concert goer saw him just like loitering and he asked him why he wasn't watching the show. And Nathan said... I don't want to see no shitty local bands. So the guy was like, you can at least go inside and stay warm. But Nathan replied, no, man, I'm going to wait for damage plan. The venue held 600 people, but there were only about 250 at this show. So it wasn't that crowded. Nathan kept talking to people in the parking lot, like, like bugging them, like as band members and like roadies and stuff were walking through. He kept like trying to stop them to talk to them. The manager of the venue saw him loitering and thought that maybe he was just some kid who couldn't afford a ticket. So he actually sent somebody to go tell Nathan to leave the premises. But then he heard Damage Plan take the stage. So 
Nathan hopped over a six-foot fence and rushed inside through a side door. Which is weird because he actually had a ticket, so I don't know why he was sneaking in like this. But everybody, like, people who were outside saw him jumping the fence, and they thought that he was just some kid without a ticket. So they were like, like, stick it to the man kind of thing. And oh my god, can you imagine being one of those people who was, like, watching him and cheering him on and then finding out later that he was a killer? Nathan walked through the venue towards the stage, passing pool tables and concert goers on the way. The crowd sees him approaching the left side of the stage, but they all kind of thought he was just getting ready to do a stage dive or something. A guy named Billy Payne, who was a singer from the opening band, he saw Nathan marching up to the stage, and he said that he looked determined and angry, like, as if he was on a mission or walking into battle. So Damage Plan took the stage and began their set. About 90 seconds into the first song, Nathan pulled out his 9mm Beretta handgun that his mom gave him for Christmas, and he headed towards Dimebag Daryl. Again, they're a minute and a half into their first song, so Daryl was playing the guitar and headbanging, completely in the zone. So he had no idea what was going on and didn't even see Nathan approaching him. He was completely blindsided when Nathan suddenly appeared right in front of him with his hand out holding a gun in his face and then fired five shots at point-blank range. Daryl was hit in the right cheek, left ear, back of head, and right hand. The audience couldn't tell what was happening. It was loud, and what they could see and hear, they they just figured it was part of the show. Like, they kind of thought this was a hoax. So they continued, like, pumping their fists in the air. But then Daryl's guitar starts making this, like, loud, high-pitched feedback noise, and the music stops. Vinny stopped playing the drums, and he stood up, and then somebody in the band started yelling, Call 911. And then chaos ensued. By the way, I have video clips of this on BrokenLimelight.com if you want to watch that. After Nathan shot Daryl, he continued firing shots into the audience. First, he shot the tour manager, Chris Paluska, who was shot in the chest. Then, the chief of security for Damage Plan, his name was Jeffrey Thompson, he tackled Nathan from behind, and in the struggle, he was shot three times. He was shot in the chest, in the back, and in the upper thigh. Next was a 23-year-old fan named Nathan Bray. He jumped on the stage and he tried to resuscitate Daryl and Thompson, and then Nathan Gale shot him in the chest, which killed him. Then Nathan tried to reload his gun, and this was when 29-year-old Aaron Hulk, that was an employee of the venue and a former Marine, Aaron charged at Nathan, and he was fatally shot six times. Then there was a roadie, his name was Travis Brunette, and Travis tried to disarm Nathan Gale, and um, Nathan ended up shooting at him, but it only grazed his arm. Travis shouted to Nathan, dude, what the fuck are you doing? And Nathan said, get out of here. And that's when he fired at him. So like that first bullet missed him. But when he saw that more shots were coming towards his head, he got the fuck out of there. Then there was a drum tech named John Brooks. Brooks tried to subdue Nathan and was shot twice in the leg. And then he was taken hostage. By this point, the police had arrived. They actually arrived within three minutes of receiving the call. Officer James Niegemeyer entered the club through the back door and he spotted Nathan holding Brooks as his hostage. So he waited for Brooks to kind of move his head to the side a little to give him a clear shot of Nathan and he fired a single shot right into Nathan's head from 20 feet away using a 12-gauge Remington Model 870 shotgun, killing him instantly. I mean, like, it blew his fucking head off. Brooks, the guy who was being held hostage, survived but obviously now has PTSD from this guy's head this guy was holding on to him, and then his head gets blown off like that, just like inches from his own face. 
Officer Niegemeyer also has PTSD over this, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. When the paramedics arrived, Dimebag Daryl was pronounced dead at the scene. He was 38 years old. Thompson, the security guard, and Hawk, the venue employee, were both pronounced dead on the scene as well. Nathan Bray, that was the 23-year-old fan, he was transported to Riverside Methodist Hospital, where he was also declared dead that evening. Paluska, the tour manager who had been shot in the chest, was also transported to the hospital and ultimately recovered from his injuries. When you watch the footage of this event, you can see Officer Niegemeyer walking around like holding a shotgun, like like it just happened. He just blew this guy's head off and he's walking around with this like blank look on his face. Like I, the only way I can explain it, explain it is like this was like survival mode. Like he was so focused and now he's like, what the fuck? Like he's in sh- like he looks like he's in shock. So now that Nathan's dead, the police searched his body and they found that his magazine was still half full and he had another 30 rounds of ammunition on him. Like, this could have been a massacre. I mean, honestly, who knows how many lives this officer just saved by killing him. After the concert, Vinnie Paul left the venue and went to his tour bus and he just hunkered down into his bunk and cried. He couldn't leave. Vinnie has discussed this event quite a bit in interviews. He recalls his brother's last words right before he stepped on stage to begin playing. Just a minute and a half before Daryl's death, he and Vinny high-fived each other and each said, Van Halen. As you know, Vinny and Daryl were big fans of Van Halen, and they became pretty, pretty acquainted with them. It was a similar dynamic, as Eddie and Alex Van Halen were also brothers and bandmates. Before Daryl died, he had been interested in getting one of Eddie Van Halen's limited edition series guitars that hadn't yet been released. So at Daryl's funeral, Eddie Van Halen explained that he planned to give him one of those guitars as a present, but then he died. Suddenly, he pulled out a yellow and black striped guitar he called the Bumblebee. It's the same one that's featured on the back cover of Van Halen 2. He placed it in Daryl's casket to be buried with him. Daryl was also a big fan of the band Kiss, and the band actually donated um, like a Kiss-style casket for him to be buried in as well. He was buried next to his mother in Arlington, Texas. His brother Vinny died in 2018 of heart disease. He died in Las Vegas just a couple days after performing at Vinyl at the Hard Rock Casino. He was 54 years old and was also buried next to Daryl and their mother. And I believe he was also uh, buried in a kiss casket. Officer Niegemeyer, the one who had shot and killed Nathan Gale, he was cleared of all wrongdoing and praised for his actions. In fact, Even Nathan's mom thanked him and said that no one knows how many lives might have been saved because of him. Unfortunately, he was diagnosed with PTSD and was unable to continue working as a police officer. He has since been fighting to have PTSD be included in workers' compensation claims, as it currently only provides coverage for physical injuries. In 2007, Dimebag Daryl was inducted into Hollywood's Rock Walk. Ace Frehley was in attendance, and he spoke in honor of Daryl. And I just think that's the sweetest thing in the world. Like when you think back to 12-year-old Dimebag Daryl standing in the mirror wearing Ace Freely makeup, and then here we are, 2007, and Ace Freely speaks in honor of him. I just think that's incredible. Like it just goes to show the impact that Daryl really had, you know, for his own idols to come back and idolize him, like full circle. In 2015, VH1 ranked Daryl as one of the most influential metal guitarists of the past 25 years. Also in 2015, Daryl placed at number five on Gibson's list of the top 10 metal guitarists of all time. In 2016, a tribute concert for Dimebag Daryl was held. It was called Dime Bash. 
Phil Anselmo was in attendance, and he did some pretty controversial things on stage. I don't even know why they let him be on the bill, but... He ended his performance by giving a Nazi salute and saying white power to the crowd. He received severe backlash from the metal community, so, of course, he tried to backtrack. He apologized, and he claimed he was joking. At one point, he said that he was just talking about white wine, like... So there's a video of this this event on YouTube and Phil Anselmo actually like commented on the video saying, okay, folks, I'll own this one. But damn it, I was joking. And the inside joke of the night was because we were fucking drinking white wine. Of all fucking things, some of y'all need to thicken up your skin. There's plenty of fuckers to pick on with a more realistic agenda. I fucking love everyone. I fucking loathe everyone. And that's that. No apologies from me. Ultimately, he was like, I'm really sorry, but everyone calling me a racist is really uncalled for. He, like, he didn't really take any responsibility for his actions. And then he did an interview with Sirius XM Radio, and, and in it, he said that he was being taunted by hecklers at his shows. So he ended up going on this rant about the hecklers, and, like, little by little, he just starts losing his shit. I'll link that video on BrokenLimelight.com as well. Phil Anselmo continued down a spiral of challenging political correctness. Like, for example, um, claiming that hip-hop encouraged racism towards white people. He was just like the kind of person that would sh say shit like, well, why can't I have white pride? Over the years, there had been talk about Pantera having like a, a reunion, but Vinnie Paul had said that he was not interested in doing any kind of reunion without his brother Daryl. And he maintained that stance until his death in 2018. But in 2022, Phil Anselmo and Rex Brown, that was Pantera's bassist, they got back together and they formed their reunion band with Zach Wilde on guitar and Charlie Benante on drums. The tour actually just kicked off this month, December 2022. And I'm not sure how I feel about that because I feel like it's not Phil Anselmo's band and the rest of the band didn't want to reunite with him, but I guess now that they're dead, everybody's fine with it. I'm really curious to know, like, how uh, Pantera fans feel about this now. Like, um, are you are you guys going to this to this reunion tour? Like, um, you guys are just okay with Phil and Salmo? Anyway, that's it for today's episode. Don't forget that you can always go to BrokenLimelight.com to watch these videos that I've mentioned and look at this um kind of like a transcript of what I've said today. Please feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions or comments about this episode, or if you'd like to suggest a case. Um, I've gotten some pretty, pretty like juicy emails from you guys, and like I'm so grateful because like I love these cases that I don't know of, and you guys tell me about them, and they just like blow my mind whole. So if you want to reach out to me, you can email me at ddwest@brokenlimelight.com, or you can just go to brokenlimelight.com and hit contact us, and there's a little form there you can fill out. Um, if you enjoy my podcast, please tell your friends. And like, maybe you could leave me an Apple review or something. I love you guys for all the nice things that you've said to me so far. And like, you're the coolest. You're the coolest. So um, follow me on social media if you want to interact a little bit more. You can find me on Broken Limelight. <laughs> nope. You can find me on Facebook.com slash Broken Limelight. I'm also on Instagram under I'm Dee West and on TikTok at Dee West LV. If you'd like to give me some extra support for my podcast, you can join my Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash broken limelight. And there what you can do is you can subscribe for $1 a month and you will get ad-free episodes and you get them up to two days early. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, bye.
One of the things people don't know about Dime, he had a guitar in his bathroom. I went in his bathroom one time. I sat down. I was like, he's got a guitar. And he's got his little tape recorder. What's that doing in here? I said, Dime, what's the deal with the guitar in the bathroom? He goes, man, that's where I write all my riffs. That's why my riffs are the shit sitting oh right there God. on the toilet, man. I mean, he straight up told me that. Bark box. Bark box. Bark box. Bark box. You guys know my dogs, Jude and Eleanor Rigby. Well, we just started getting in BarkBox, and I'm telling you, your dogs will love you. No more are they angry at the mailman. No more, I say. It's like a box of dog joy that's delivered every month, and each box tells a different story with different themed toys, treats, and photo-worthy props. Typically, what we get in each box is a couple of toys, a couple of treats, and a chew, but you can actually tailor-fit your box to fit your dog's needs. Guys, I'm telling you, your dogs will love you, even more than they already do. So try it out, and if you use my link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox, which is a $35 value. So just head to BarkBox.com slash BrokenLimelight and get started on your first BarkBox today. BarkBox! 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 Nailed it, Jude.